We welcome you back to Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. Today we present episode four, entitled The Freedmen's Bureau and the Uncivil War. Armed with a history degree from Harvard University, ravenous interest in all things historical, and a lifetime of continuous study, Bob explores the ongoing passions, violence, and conflicts occurring in the South after the formal conclusion of the Civil War. Specifically, he shares his extensive knowledge of the little-known Freedmen's Bureau, which was perhaps the earliest attempt by our government toward racial integration, assimilation, and the establishment of civil rights for all. This all occurring in a time of continued post-war hatred, violence, and extreme cruelty. With that background, I am once again pleased to present your mentor and host, Bob Johnson, with the Freedmen's Bureau and the Uncivil War. say the words Freedom Bureau in a crowded room today, I suspect you would find that not one person would have the slightest idea what you were talking about. And yet the Freedmen's Bureau in American history was one of the uh, significant chapters which brought brought to light a lot of information about relations between our two sections of the country and back in the at the end of the Civil War uh, and uh, the uh, Uh, intelligence of Congress as a group and how uh, they reacted to situations. Some things never change. Picture for a moment what it was like in the shattered Southland of our nation at that point, at the end of uh, what many call the Civil War. The Southerners called it the War of Northern Aggression, and the Northerners mostly called it the Rebellion. I've just finished listening to a book uh, by Ulysses S. Grant, and he never uses the term Civil War. For him, it's the rebellion. Animosity was fairly strong at the end of the Civil War. Uh, On uh, April 9, uh, 1865, when General Lee surrendered to General Grant, and uh, a few weeks later, uh, Joe Johnston surrendered to Sherman down in North Carolina, and uh, by the end of May, all fighting had ceased in the South. But at that point, as often happens in the absence of real authority, there were criminal gangs of armed men roaming around, many of them deserters from one army or the other, uh, ravaging, stealing, looting, raping, doing things that uh, make you wonder about uh, uh, human nature sometimes. But uh, that often happens in a post-war situation before authority has been reestablished. That authority was soon reestablished when Union troops occupied the entire South after peace uh, had been uh, reached. But the South was in ruins, a total shambles. The Union Army had found at one point that the only way to win the war was to destroy all of the ability of the South to fight. The South only had 12 million people compared to 20 million for the North, 
And of those 12, 12 million in the South, 4 million were slaves. So you had uh, a preponderance of numbers of people in the North. As a matter of fact, the South at one point had drafted all men between the ages of 18 and 45, and toward the end of the war became so desperate for manpower that they actually were drafting boys between 14 and 18 for a so-called junior reserve uh, in a non-fighting role and drafted men between 45 and 65 uh, as a senior reserve. This indicates the South was in deep trouble and uh, there were smoking ruins all over the South. So something needed to be done to reconstruct it and make them the South part of the country that we all were part of initially uh, at that point. Congress in March of 1865 passed a law which was known as the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands. And they weren't quite sure what they were trying to do, except they realized that four million people who had no ability to read or write could not become citizens overnight without some help. And that was their idea of the so-called Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau involved sending uh, agents all across the South to be located in various locations and help the Negroes. And I'll give you the ways in which they were going to do this in a minute. The information I'm giving you was drained mostly from a report that a man named William Stone put together back in 1868 when he completed his service as a Freedmen's Bureau agent. William Stone happened to be my wife's great-grandfather, and at the end of his service, he sat down and wrote 190 pages of information on what his experience had been as a an agent of the Bureau. He happened to have been stationed in Anderson and then Aiken, South Carolina. It has been said that a committee is a group of people who set out to design a horse and wind up with a camel. And that was certainly true of uh, Congress back in 1865 when they put together this bill. Uh, Among other things, they forgot to allocate any money to support it. But since most of the uh, Freedmen's Bureau agents initially were Uh, Army officers who'd stayed in the Army after the war, uh, this did not turn out to be a big problem. But there were uh, deficiencies in the Freedmen's Bureau uh, set up, uh, and uh, one of the deficiencies was, initially at least, the ability of a Freedmen's Bureau agent to overcome the animosity in the South was not helped a whole bunch by uh, soldiers of the North because they hadn't really reached a coordination set up yet. There were four parts to the Freedmen's Bureau legislation, which uh, were the four things that William Stone, uh, who happened to be my wife's great-grandfather, uh, had to work out uh, and, uh, and perform. Uh, number one was rations. There were many starving people in the South. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people starving because and food just wasn't becoming available in this war-ravaged land. So distribution of rations coming from the north to the starving southern people uh, was a very important part of their responsibility. Uh, It was pointed out by someone since the initial legislation talked about feeding the starving freed slaves that the the southern 
whites were starving too. And so they changed the legislation to provide for both. And William Stone in his journal indicated that the, the rations he was distributing to the starving people, many of whom walked as far as 20 miles on ration day to get the food, uh, showing how hungry they had to be, that the distribution was 56% to white people and 44% to black people. And that uh, most of the time uh, he was able to determine whether people really were starving or not, but there were some people who uh, collected rations uh, just because they were free and from the government and they didn't really need them. And he just did mention how interesting it was to see uh, former plantation owners standing in line waiting for rations right next to their former freed slaves. The second major function that they had in addition to distributing rations was to make sure that in courtroom situations where whites and blacks were involved, that the blacks were treated fairly. After all, these people were formerly the property of the whites, and now they were uh, supposedly citizens, uh, as provided by the uh, 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And uh, th th he thought this was quite an ironic uh, vi vision in the, in the ration distribution. But uh, in court, very often the whites would, uh, would dominate it unless the uh, there was someone there from the federal government to say, wait a minute, you can't treat the black man that way. The evidence points the other way. And William Stone played a very active role in this situation. Uh, he, this did not extend to capital cases, however. And uh, in his uh, journal, William Stone mentioned that uh, in a very short uh, three-month period in Edgefield, South Carolina, 10 blacks had been murdered by whites. Only three of those cases came to court and the white juries in all cases exonerated the white perpetrator of the murder. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that happened in capital cases. The third major area in which the uh, Freedmen's Bureau agent was expected to act was education. And this probably was the most important because it, until this happened, it was against the law in nearly every southern state for the black people to be educated in any way. So you had a 90% illiteracy rate among the people who had just been freed from slavery. There were some plantation owners who found that they, uh, they could get better results from a slave if he were uh, at least knew how to read and write, and they had to break their own laws in order to do that. And so that would account for the 10% of the freed slaves who were educated. But the education program provided by the Freedmen's Bureau was requiring the Freedmen's Bureau agent to set up schools, often in uh, black churches uh, or in old factories uh, that were abandoned. Uh, there was even one in the town of Sleepy Hollow, South Carolina, uh, in an old abandoned distillery. And these were teaching the children of the freed slaves uh, how to read and write and all about uh, civil rights and that sort of thing. And uh, this, the teachers were usually from the North, usually from uh, some of the aid societies. Uh, the uh, Quakers were very active and many of the religious groups sent teachers down to teach the children of the freed slaves in these uh, improvised schools. Uh, and uh, these, these did meet with uh, considerable success. Uh, on a personal note, one of the 
Quakers, uh, Quaker teachers who came down was a woman named Mary Taylor, and she wound up marrying William Stone, thereby uh, producing a line of people that produced my wonderful wife. The fourth and last of the functions of the uh, Freedmen's Bureau agent was to oversee and approve or disapprove labor contracts between the former or for, between the plantation owners or the farm owners and their employees who used to be their slaves. Uh, very often the plantation owners had a hard time understanding why people that used to be their property now had to be paid a salary for doing the same work. And uh, this was uh, something that was uh, to be worked out and, and overseen by the Freedmen's Bureau agent to make sure that the freed people were now treated fairly uh, and were paid for their work either in crops uh, or in money. And, uh, the, and also the freed people, they often had difficulties deciding on what kind of crops there would be because the freed people equated cotton with slavery. And the plantation owners uh, said this was their best crop, their, their biggest money crop. And uh, so there was a lot of, were a lot of dis disputes along those lines too. Serious animosity always follows uh, the end of any war between, the, it takes a while for the people who are combatants to get back together. And the Civil War produced an, an especially difficult situation along these lines, A, because of the devastation that had been created in the South, which the Union forces felt they needed to do to win the war, and the assassination of a beloved president of the North by uh, John Wilkes Booth, uh, which caused tremendous animosity where uh, initially the North had not felt that bad about the Southerners. In fact, Lincoln had said, we're going to let them up easy. But uh, once Mr. Lincoln had been assassinated, the attitude of the Northerners was, let's make them pay for what they have done. After all, there are 300,000 uh, young Americans from the North who have died in this war, and another 300,000 men from the South who have died in this war. And it didn't need to happen. And uh, so this animosity continued. In some parts of the South, it continues today, even 150 years later. But fortunately, I'm happy to say most of it has become uh, more of an amusing sort of an animosity, if you can put those two words together. And I'm gonna give a couple of examples a few months ago, or a few years ago, rather, uh, my wife and I visited some very nice in-laws up in Tennessee. And uh, while we were visiting with them, uh, a, a Southern gentleman friend of theirs dropped in for a chat. He and I got on the subject of the Civil War, and he made the point at one time that uh, General Lee never did surrender to General Grant. And I allowed us how this meant that the history books all seemed to have it wrong. And he said, no, what really happened at Appomattox up in uh, Wilmer McLean's living room when the Grant and Lee met was that Lee was having a meeting with his generals and they had decided to, uh, they, they were making a plan to uh, go on to take Washington and then they were going to get Baltimore and Philadelphia and New York and Boston. They were going to stop probably at Boston. They had it all figured how they were going to win the war that way. And uh, General Lee, who was meticulous in his dress, happened to look down and saw that on his uh, ceremonial sword, there was a little bit of mud on the handle. He looked around the room, according to my informant, 
uh, up there in Clarksville. He looked around the room and he saw a little man standing in the corner uh, with a mud-spattered uniform and no insignia of rank and assumed he must be an orderly. And he went over to him and handed him a sword, uh, planning to ask the man to clean it up for him. Well, you guessed it. Uh, the man said, uh, General Lee, I'm uh, General Ulysses S. Grant. I accept this sword as a uh, an indication of your surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. Well, General Lee was a gentleman, and he realized a dreadful misunderstanding had just taken place, but he was too much of a gentleman to recant. And so you could say that the Civil War uh, uh, really uh, was settled on the basis of a matter of etiquette, according to this man up in Clarksville. And uh, he, he kept a straight face through all of this, and I at times, I actually believe that he believed it, but uh, uh, if not, uh, then he was sort of pulling this Yankee boy's leg a little. The other example I can give is down at Fort Fisher, which was a very important uh, battle uh, of Fort Fisher in January of 1865. That's just south of Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, I happened to be walking the grounds of Fort Fisher one day when they were having a uh, reenactment of the Battle of Fort Fisher. Uh, just ahead of me on this uh, beautiful sunny day was a, a young couple with their uh, young son. He may have been about seven or eight years old, a real cute little kid. He was carrying his little toy rifle, and I was standing right behind him when all of a sudden he knelt down on one knee, and he said, bang, I done shot me a Yankee. And I said to myself, oh my goodness, this the, the war isn't over yet. Uh, this the, it seems to be carrying on a little longer than I expected it would. But uh, happily, uh, things are, are uh, not as serious as they were right after the war, and, and people are able to laugh occasionally on uh, things that happen uh, having to do between the two, uh, the two sides of the country, which is now one country, I'm happy to say. Uh, things got a little sticky when the 15th Amendment of the Constitution was passed, which guaranteed the right to vote to uh, all males. Uh, women still were left out of the equation, but uh, that meant that uh, now the, uh, the freed slaves were able to go to the polls and vote for the people and the measures that they, uh, they favored. And the Southerners did not think at all well of this. As a matter of fact, the Southern newspapers uh, had a number of names for the Freedmen's Bureau, which I can't repeat here because they were so bad. Uh, but uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Freedmen's Bureau agent, I might add, was about as popular as a skunk whiting into, uh, waddling into the middle of a ladies' garden party. But uh, they, uh, the, the Freedmen's Bureau agent was required to oversee the voting process to make sure that the freed slaves were able to, to uh, cast their vote. The enthusiasm for the Freedmen's Bureau waned rather rapidly as, as, as time went by. In 1868, Congress decided that uh, the only thing left for the Freedmen's Bureau agent to do would be to manage the educational process that uh, all of the other, he didn't have any more rations to distribute. He could stay out of the courtroom uh, and uh, he just uh, didn't have the same responsibilities anymore. I've never really heard the reason why that happened. And the, the whole Freedmen's Bureau died out in 1872. It was just dropped.
William Stone actually retired from the uh, army uh, when the uh, responsibilities were reduced uh, in uh, 1869. He uh, uh, went into the uh, profession as a lawyer uh, in Charleston and uh, actually ultimately wound up uh, spending some time as Attorney General of South Carolina in uh, 1877, just before uh, the big event that the South retook control of its future and the Jim Crow policies were resumed. Uh, the South had actually, right after the Civil War had enacted, and the Southern states had enacted what they called Black Codes, which deprived the freed slaves of certain rights. And that's one of the reasons why Congress came on so strong to eliminate uh, the, the effect of these Black Codes. One could question, well, what was really accomplished by all of this? Why do we see the uh, Freedmen's Bureau as having had some significance when it seemed to die such an unhappy, <laughs> uh, unremarkable death? The Many people were able to live on and did not die from starvation because of the ration distribution. This, uh, uh, many Southern, they, they, often people have said there were more than 100,000 people who would have died of starvation if the agents had not distributed rations. The uh, blacks at least understood a little bit about how courtroom uh, behavior was supposed to work as a result of the provo courts that the uh, Freedmen's Bureau agents ran. The, uh, the, also, the freed slaves and their children managed to understand what education was all about. Many of them learned to read and write and become more efficient citizens of, uh, the, of, the, uh, of the country because they were able to read and write and they began the long haul to what is the case today where they are full-fledged citizens of the United States in all respects and operating effectively as members of our nation. And uh, finally, the, uh, the last thing that occurs to me is that in the development of the labor contract, the planters and the freed slaves began to develop a new relationship between them that uh, has carried on, uh, even though uh, during the Jim Crow period, it was more like indentured servitude than anything else. It, it was the beginning of the end for the slavery concept uh, in the minds of uh, both sides of the equation. If, I might mention that in doing the research for my book, This uh, Violent Land, which is uh, a kind of a dramatized version of William Stone's life, I uh, actually held in my hands letters from black people who were writing to the governor saying, please do something because we don't dare sleep in our own home at night. We have to sleep out in the woods because if we sleep in our own home, people in white hats will show up and murder us. And this has been happening. It's happened to our neighbors and we're just scared to death. Please, governor, please do something about it. It's unfortunate that the Jim Crow period lasted when it did. It started when the, uh, there was a, uh, a deal between uh, Tilden and uh, Rutherford Hayes uh, in a disputed presidential election of 77. And uh, Hayes uh, finally won the presidency because he promised to remove all federal troops from the South, which he promptly did. 
And that really was the end of the uh, Reconstruction period, uh, kind of an uncivil period, but uh, it got worse for the black man in the South for the next uh, 90 years. Fortunately, the civil rights legislation of the uh, mid-1940s, and rather 60s, seemed to uh, uh, begin to bring about equality in our country. Maybe we're not quite there yet, but we're certainly close. Looking back on the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, it, uh, it was uh, relatively unknown uh, uh, in the future of history, but uh, certainly it was a prominent, uh, important factor in the uncivil period that followed the Civil War. Thank you. We thank you all for joining us once again and hope that you have enjoyed our effort. Today's topic, the Freedmen's Bureau, is central to Bob's novel, This Violent Land, which is available through Amazon.com. Additionally, this agency is the subject of Bitter Freedom, a diary and record of service in the Freedmen's Bureau by Major William Stone which was edited by Bob and Sue Johnson and is available through the University of South Carolina Press. The authentic weaponry seen in this episode's pictorial was provided on loan from the Pierce Antiquities Collection with our great appreciation. For Bob Johnson, this is technical support Mr. Ivy wishing you well and inviting you back for our next installment of Senior Moments with Bob Johnson.